hope you're hungry. The table is set. Join us for another cosmic feast. Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, David, and this is your host, Sydney. What's deja vu, Sids? Deja vu is when something happens to you and you're like, wow, this has already happened before. So, okay, so that is, that's good because that's sort of the way that I would have defined it. Right. I remember that we talked about like it happening in dreams that you remembered having a dream about this, but my experiences my with theory. deja vu, yeah. that was, that was your theory. Yeah. But my experiences with deja vu are, are more, are more like moments, just tiny moments, like one second of like drying a dish and the way I put it in the cabinet and it makes a clink and I'm like, ah, that's happened before. Like that exact and me being aware of the clink kind of thing is like, it's happened before. Whether or not it happened in reality, that's up for discussion. But th those are my experiences of what I call deja vu anyway. <laughs> I define I defined it very simply. I was like, I've had a dream about this. That's all. There was, it was a flash. It was a flash bang in a dream. You're defining it as sort of a, a feeling that you, you know, you, you have a, you have a notion. Um, yeah right? That this has happened, or you, you have a notion about what's going to happen. Jenny Randall says that in deja vu, we seem certain that an event has happened, even though we know it never has. So you kind of have this vague and insubstantial, but powerfully convincing feeling when it happens. It's more akin to a sense of familiarity, but it's not an exact notion of what's going to happen. So like maybe in the probability waves that are floating through the mind, you get access to this unreachable realm where you're like, oh, like I knew this was going to happen because it's there. It's, it's out there. Our brain may be constantly aware of the vast array of possible future transition states at a quantum level. So there must be some deep core within our consciousness that registers all these things before they happen. When, when you're experiencing deja vu, uh, okay, you, there's like, we talked about the lady in the lawnmower, right? I was going to ask a question about that because that one was a precognition -cog story, right? Precognition pre Precognition. So how do you separate deja vu from precognition? I'm glad you asked. It's, it's actually, and here's the beautiful part of the way that she describes it. She relates it to nostalgia. You know how when you have mm. nostalgia... When you have nostalgia, it's more than, it's not a memory. Something happens and it recreates a feeling mm. that you remember mm -hmm. from a past event. Familiarity, like you were saying. Deja vu does the same thing for the future. You experience huh. reverse nostalgia. You experience a familiarity with something in the future that hasn't happened yet. Reverse nostalgia. I like it. Okay, if we're going to think about nostalgia and deja vu, we're thinking of, okay, in terms of nostalgia, we're remembering something in the past that's causing something in the present, right? 
Yes. With with deja vu, it's it's a weird opposite thing where where something happens uh, in the present that that has never happened before, but we still recognize it. So in terms of precognition, Jenny Randall's breaks it down a little bit for us and, and, and kind of explains. And I just want to put this out there so we're kind of aware of this in, in general. But these things tend to happen. These these precognitive events tend to happen when people drift to sleep, when the consciousness of the mind kind of shuts down, when you're in mm. this kind of foggy um, state. And here, the key to precognition, and I'm going to highlight it with two stories. The key to precognition is the emotion that you experience while something is happening. Let's okay. take something yeah. insane like 9-11, right? Yeah. Let's, let's say that during 9-11, let's say somebody has a precognitive uh, vision on 9-11. It's not that they're remembering 9-11, but the emotion that they experience is so strong so profound, soul-shaking, that they get, that information gets sent back in the past. So they're basically, and where would this be recorded? Where would, where would our future emotions, traumas, and experiences be recorded? They would be recorded in us, in our subconscious, in our conscious, in this mechanism. So the information yeah. just gets sent back down the line in its original source. Okay, I'm going to give you a... That's pretty crazy. So we're going to... This ties into time loops. Time loops. Your new favorite cereal, kid tested, mom approved. Goes great with oatmeal. Um, (laughs) Ew. You have cereal mixed with oatmeal? Oat milk. Oh, I thought you said oatmeal, but I thought you said it weird, like oatmeal. No, no. Oat milk and cereal is a match made in cereal heaven. I do love oat milk. It is very... Good stuff. Have you but had I it also with cereal? Like coconut milk? Of course. Okay, so emotion is the key to precognition. In other words, a mother is more likely to sense danger to her child in some precognitive flash than uh, than she is to some random stranger on the street. Right? Mm-hmm. It's connected to mm-hmm. her, her emotions, her trauma, um, feelings. Okay, but let's talk about time loops, and we'll get back to emotion. Um, Okay, here's a very basic example of a time loop. So it's 1980. It's London. Simon, Simon, uh, in this in this account, Cowell. is visiting a oh. doctor. The doctor happens to be recording his dreams. I don't know what kind of doctor this is, but maybe he's sounds like Freud. He's it's uh, exactly Simon is uh, hey. asking about his dreams, and Simon says to him, he said. I had an odd one last night about a white scar appearing on my arm. And the doctor says, oh, you mean a white scar like this? And he rolls up his sleeve and shows him the exact looking white. Wait, oh my gosh. Can I tell you a crazy story? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I have I have a birthmark on my back that's white. And most birthmarks are, are brown. Like they're, you know, a, a, the opposite melanin. So it makes the skin darker. But mine is like, no melanin, so it, it lightens the skin there. Um, and it doesn't sunburn. It doesn't, like, it's like a weird spot on my skin. It doesn't hurt or anything, and I don't notice it. Um, but when I was born, the doctors were like, yeah, she's got a birthmark on her shoulder. And my dad was like, that is so crazy. When he was in high school, he got in a motorcycle accident, and he um, 
fell off his bike and went down this gravel road on his back and he like lost a bunch of skin on his back and he had to get a skin graft um, from skin on his leg or whatever to like go up onto his back to replace the skin. And so he has a big scar there now and it's since it's healed, it's shrunk and it's on the same shoulder, same size, same shape as my birthmark. And scars are white. So. Wait, and so his white scar mirrors your birthmark. Yeah, or I guess my birthmark mirrors his white scar because he got that first. <laughs> well, in terms of there are reincarnation stories where people have marks that reflect things that have happened to them in past lives. Maybe, I mean, look, in a very scientific way. Uh, <laughs> also needed a, screen, a skin graft? control center <laughs> recorded the trauma and then, you know, maybe all the other sperm from then on decided to oh. get tattoos on their back. And then eventually... That is when, actually really weird. Eventually Because maybe DNA is powerful like that. Eventually, when he decided to have a kid, he's like, you know, at that point, all of the sperm in him, they were all tattooing their backs. So... <laughs> I mean, you're putting it in a humorous sense, but it actually kind of makes sense because, like... Uh, sperm is is uh, there's DNA in sperm, right? There's like makeup of DNA already in sperm. Of course, before there is. it fertilizes. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I or or is all the DNA sperm in the DNA. egg? I don't. No, I don't know. Definitely is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So the D- DNA can change based on like because they took skin from a different part of his body and put it on his back. So it's like still part of his DNA. It was just moved to a different part on his body. So like that DNA has to be rewritten. I don't know, man. Maybe it could have. Well, it's, it's all part of looking at these crazy events and just saying, like, they're not that crazy. It's just it's just kind of understanding how reality works. Reality is what's crazy. This this time loop story is is already contains things that are insane. And, and the reason that it, it, it's already posing an impossible question is that the dream followed the effect. Uh-huh. The doctor only reveals the scar to him because of the dream he describes to him. He wouldn't right. have rolled up his sleeve to show him this scar. So the scar is only revealed because of the dream that the kid has. The dream is the effect of the cause that hasn't happened yet. So the cause is yes. in the future, the effect is in the past. Yeah. What maybe. I think we're looking at is we're looking at dreams themselves as the, or whatever that a subconscious state is having the power to create things. And this is this is what you kind of experienced as deja vu. It's, it's more of a time loop. Maybe this is what I experienced because, like, I told you my deja vu story, which had to do with um, going to a comedy club. And going with yeah. my girlfriend, it was it was my birthday celebration. We we pull up in a Tesla Uber and we we go into <laughs> the hostess stand. And as soon as I approach the hostess stand, I look over and I see this beautiful bar uh, venue and I see the host. And when she says whatever she says, what she says and the entire place triggers deja vu. I'm like, I've seen this before and I'm pretty yeah. sure I've seen it in a dream. Okay, here's another case for you. Yorkshire, UK. Um, In Yorkshire, uh, a woman named Mrs. Woodhead tells Jenny Randalls that she dreamed about a friend that she hadn't seen in many years that she lost all contact with. When they're talking, there's another friend there that hears about the dream. The third friend ends up going to visit her own mother at the hospital. 
while she's mm-hmm. visiting her own mother at the hospital, um, through a series of chance encounters, Mrs. Woodhead's long-lost friend appears in that building. That third friend finds the friend and ends up arranging the meeting that Mrs. Woodhead dreamed about in exactly the same way she dreamed about it. That's insane. (laughs) So the third party is maybe collapsing the wave function there and making this happen somehow. Remember how we had an egg story during the first uh, Time Storm show? Like the egg shape of the spaceship? Remember we had an egg-shaped Time Storm creature? It was like an egg and a yolk. I've been excited to tell you this one. This is a banana sandwich story. Michelle from Chesterfield, UK, tells Jenny this story where she basically, Michelle has this dream in which her boyfriend's best friend tells her that her boyfriend was in a motorcycle accident. She's in the middle of making a banana sandwich in this dream and she bursts out laughing when she hears the news. What? It's strange, right? It's a strange dream because Michelle's like, I would never laugh at that news. Yeah, that's really messed up. Everything about this setup, I love it because that's exactly how dreams are. They're like a strange mix of like symbols, emotions that collide with events in weird ways. So she tells, she's at the pub with her, um, with her boyfriend and her boyfriend's best mate. And she tells him the story. She's like, listen, I had this dream. I was making this banana sandwich. I burst out laughing when I heard the news of you in an accident. They all have a good laugh about it, whatever, whatever. A few hours later, she goes home. She's making herself a banana sandwich when the phone rings. No. Her boyfriend's best friend calls and said that he's been in a motorcycle accident. She bursts out laughing because she thinks that her boyfriend's best friend and her boyfriend are playing a joke on her. Are pranking her, yeah. Bursts out laughing. The funny thing is that the best friend didn't even remember her telling that story. He's like, no, what are you talking about? He's like, no, you don't understand. This really happened. The reason she's laughing is because she thinks that they're talking about the dream. The dream contains a reference to the dream itself. Exactly. That's like, whoa. Super, super trippy. Super quantum, leapy, physic-y, something. <laughs> I feel like the the universe should just like cave in on itself at that moment. Maybe the universe caves in on itself. Michelle did not remember the accident itself. Her precognition, yeah. her time loop, it's not about, she doesn't, in her dream, she's not seeing the accident go down. And in a lot of precognitive right. events, a lot of precognitive feelings, people are not remembering like something they weren't around to see. What she's remembering, what this triggers in her in her dream is she's connected to the emotion she feels when she hears the news. There's no visual feedback in the dream of the motorcycle accident. Rather, it's just a connection to that ex- extraordinary emotional response that she has. It, it loops in on itself in a, in a very crazy and amazing way. Let's now move <laughs> to time slips. So a t- in a time slip situation, we're not talking about time travel. The reason we're not talking about time travel, like in a time storm, okay, so a time storm, something that can befall you on a very unlucky day or a very lucky day, it can transport you forward in time, right? It can, it can mm-hmm. 
can kidnap you and bring you back in a, in a weird way. Um, a time loop seems to be connected to precognition and dreams, right? Or, mm-hmm. or at least in those examples. A time slip is a situation where reality from the past and a reality from the present possibly connected through a time storm overlap. So maybe you can mm. see something from the past. Maybe the past sees you. Something weird, but it doesn't exactly meld and it doesn't stick around for long. I'll give you an example. In Surrey, England, 1968, uh, Mr. P. Chase tells researcher Joan Foreman, who apparently Joan Foreman was a great researcher that we got to look into, um, of a situation <laughs> where he's waiting for the bus in, in, uh, at the Surrey countryside. He gets bored uh, waiting for the bus. He takes a stroll where he finds these two thatted cottage houses with a sign on their wall that says 1837. He looks okay. past the cottages and he sees these breathtaking gardens. He's like amazed by these gardens, by these houses. He's, he, he almost thinks of it as fortuitous that he took this little walk. He wandered away. Again, he's sort of wandering alone. He's in this dreamy state. Uh, he, he's, he, he, he then goes back to work and he tells somebody at work about what he saw. And the guy at work argues with him. He's like, I know that street. I know that corner. There are two brick houses there. There ain't no gardens there. They get into a huge argument about it. As men do. As British men at work do. (laughs) One can only imagine how red in the face they turned. And so Mr. Chase decides to take another walk soon after that. And he goes over there and he finds these brick houses. He doesn't see the cottages. He doesn't see the gardens. Miss Foreman establishes later on, because she's the researcher, she's doing the research, she's going to the library, pulling out the slides. Uh, she's she's <laughs> finding out that, um, she found out that those cottages that had once been there were, were demolished in the early 1900s. Mount Lowe, 1974. Bo Orjo from Sweden, he ends up moving to the West Coast, 1974. Mr. Sweden on the West Coast, uh, living his new life, he goes on a hike uh, along Mount Low, just outside of Pasadena, California. And when he comes across on the mountain, he comes across this beautiful green hotel that he encounters halfway up the mountain. He has a lunch with him. He eats his packed lunch. He's sitting at the edge of the hotel property, and he sees um, this maid sweeping up on the porch. Uh, and there's this weird, like, shimmering, misty light that he sees and he's like but he's so impressed by this hotel he just thinks it's one of the most beautiful things he's ever seen he comes back he tells people in the store you can imagine this dude in like his Swedish accent saying I saw the most beautiful hotel trust me you have to go to the hotel you have to believe me they tell him that's impossible there's no hotel on the mountain we know that mountain we know that hike you're crazy he ends up going back with a friend. He's like, I, I swear to you, I am Sven. No, I, I am Bo and you're Sven. Sven. And we vowed to never lie to each other. Ah, a big summer blowout. We, we vowed to never lie. This is our big summer blowout. <laughs> In the spot where the hotel was, there was just a pile of rubble. After wow. some research, what do they find out? There was a millionaire named Lo who once wanted to build a railway uh, halfway up this mountain. But the millionaire's money runs out 
The railway ends up going to nowhere. But even though he never finished the railroad up there, railway is British for railroad, he builds this magnificent hotel right by the railroad. And it's this hotel that he sees. So it really did exist at one point. It existed, just like the thatched houses that Mr. Chase sees in 1968. In this situation, Bo is seeing a, a time slip. He's seeing a hotel from the past. Now, my question is, like, was he not, like, you know, being led to the fact that it might not have been in the same time as him because, like, the maid was dressed in, like, old 1800s clothing or something? Like, there was He no- didn't go inside. And, you know, there are time slip stories or weird dimensional stories where people do actually go inside. And, and, uh, and let me tell you, whenever they go inside to weird, like, phantom, extra-dimensional hotels and stuff, the one thing you don't want to do, Sydney, don't ever eat any of the food. Or drink the drinks. Don't eat the food. Don't drink the drinks. It's all fairy It's like Pan's Labyrinth. (laughs) Exactly. And it's a (gasps) hundred... I've got eyeballs in my hands. Oh, that's brilliant. You fell through the time slip. Oh, my Lord. That's terrifying. (laughs) That would make a good Halloween costume. (laughs) That would, actually. That's a great idea. I'm going to write that one down. (laughs) You got to write that down. Well, I think sometimes you see historic places and they they are from the past i think in this country it tends to be less it's less of a thing than in europe and stuff or or in other countries where you have ancient buildings ancient hotels that are up there with modern hotels but here you 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 know occasionally maybe he thought it was just like an old beautiful hotel i mean that's why he told everybody about it that's why he was on a quest with his friend sven and he was like i swear this is here the past interacting with the present kind of like the shining you know, that's that's the image I had when you were like, he pulled up, up to this hotel that was beautiful in the mountains. I pictured the Stanley Hotel. Yeah, and, and look, in, in the first time sub story, in the second time sub story, you have men that are wandering alone. They're wandering alone. You got some weird pyrotechnics happening, some weird electrical activity going down. Uh, you're in a dreamlike But they're not state. even aware that they're experiencing it until later. That's the well, cool Well, the guy thing. who saw the... Um, the guy who saw the hotel, he made note of a strange, shimmering, mist, misty right? light. Yeah. That's true. Joan Foreman, uh, the, the writer of this book that Jenny Randalls is talking about, she, she, um, she uh, quotes this Cornish woman who uh, has a great way to describe what Jenny Randalls has dubbed the Oz factor, which is when you experience one of these weird supernatural events, Uh, The quote is, you passed over a threshold into a world of utter silence, surrounded by some sort of silvery light. Mm. There's an absence of noise, sometimes to the point of noticeable quietness. I mean, and and in a lot of the time storm uh, stories, time slip effects stories as well, in a lot of these stories, there there is an element of electricity. They say that the the uh, and that's probably in a lot of movies like this too, where there's this these sparks that are flying. Um, there's this story uh, that the SPR reported to, to Jenny Randall's made note of. It's a famous story, and the SPR was a Society for Psychical Research. Um, it was a story told by two well-to-do English women who, uh, on their trip to Versailles, they experienced the gardens as they were in the time of Marion Antoinette. Whoa. How lucky do you have to be? I mean, that's a museum trip that you would remember. 
where you're... How would you know that it was that time, though? Well, you would just probably see people in different uh, uniforms. You would see, yeah, you would yeah, see yeah. them wearing different clothes. You would see the gardens arranged in a completely different way. Um, and the two ladies that told that story said that there was an electrical uh, aura about the weather that day. Electrical aura. Hmm. There's a famous photograph um, of a futuristic floating man taken in May 1964 by a fireman named Jim Templeton on Burr Marshes. He's filming his daughter, right? He's taking a photograph of his daughter at a picnic. It's May 1964. And when he takes this photograph, um, this is a famous supernatural photograph because there is a spaceman that appears in the photograph. Or so they think. Whoa. So they, and Jim, who's the fireman, ended up, the antidote that's connected here is he ends up saying that um, the weather that day on the marsh was unusually charged with electrical energy. Now, I want you to see this photograph. Oh, I found it. I found it. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, I do see the muscles. But he's facing away from her. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah, I think they look like back muscles. It doesn't look like It looks like there's just some dude in the future standing there, you know, in a future where the coronavirus has destroyed everything. It's like so many of these um, supernatural photos that are super vague, you know? I love this story because it it just reminds me of, like, like if this happened to me during my drinking days, I know that I would react, I'd probably scream in the same fashion, but it would be like like really (laughs) high-pitched. So this is what happens to this dude. It's Baltimore, 1947. Arthur Four of Baltimore, Maryland, describes the night he was out dancing until 2.30. <laughs> he, he takes a taxi to his apartment. He's super drunk. He's got these, like, two really big bolts on his door, like, really good locks on his door. He opens up one lock, opens up another lock. He takes off all his clothes. He dives into his bed, and he switches off the light. Then he hears... Someone coming up the stairs. They sound super drunk. He hears someone open one lock, open the other lock. He hears someone take off their clothes, dive into bed, and turn off the light. (gasps) What? Here's the light switch because the light's already off. The reason that Arthur says that he didn't run in the most terrified fashion of his life is because his mind and his ears, they recognized the sounds they had just played. Okay, here's a case from 1991, Oldham, UK. By the way, a lot of trippy UK stories in Jenny Randall's work, obviously she's from the UK, but I have a feeling that a lot of weird, weird shit goes down in the UK. Like, I don't know why. I don't know if it's because of the history that the island has. You know, I don't know if it it happens to be geographically in like weird locations. I mean, they're not only a lot of electrical electrical UFO sightings there. There there are big cat stories there. There's obviously a ton of weird time time storm time loops situations. Big cats. Um, Yeah, I can't wait till we cover that kind of stuff. Um, Here's a simple story where a security camera at the Butterflies nightclub in Oldham, 1991, gets tripped in the middle of the night. The police uh, end up contacting the owner of the club. He gets in. He's, they watch the security tapes, and they find that there's no robbery or anything. 
What they see on the camera is the camera picked up this weird white form, looks like a guy, and he's walking through a corridor in the building that's not there, and then he walks through a wall that's not there. <gasps> this happened to me before. So it's like either it's a ghost story or this guy right. is seeing like a reality that is in the future or a different reality where things are arranged or, differently. Or like the film was superimposed on maybe something. Yeah, I mean, it's just so strange. You can't make this stuff up, you know? And they're not that saying... That happened to me one time. What do you mean? I thought of it as a ghost story, but it was I was like just sitting in my living room watching TV and out of the corner of my eye, I saw someone walk down the hallway and go into my parents' bedroom. And then I looked up and I, I was like, was that my mom? And then my mom came through the hallway with a laundry basket in her hand and opened the door. The door was closed and went into the room. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my. And I like went and told her and she was like, you're just saying things. They might. Yeah. My mom likes to say that I like to make up a lot of stories. But I'm telling you, it was it was in my peripheral vision. I didn't really think anything of it, but it was like it was like a white figure. I thought my mom had like a white shirt on because I saw it, but I wasn't looking at it because I was looking at the TV. And then it just disappeared. But then when I looked up, the door was closed. And then my mom came around the corner and I was like, who the hell was that? <laughs> Jenny Randall's was breaking down, like, what kind of personalities are susceptible to some of these um, mm. experiences. And some of the things she said was uh, people who are have a very visual, creative mind, mm, people who remember things, people who basically creative people. Um well, it's probably a little bit more of like open-mindedness too, just being yeah. open to that. Well, you're able to kind of go into that um, trans-psychic realm, right? You're, mm -hmm. you're able to kind of mm -hmm. see things that either haven't ha happened in the past, happening in the future, happening in a parallel reality. There's a famous time slip case where a York man named Harry Martindale reports that he saw Roman legionnaires marching through, his, through a cellar that he was working in. Whoa. But here's the key. They're, they're marching right through a far wall, but they, he can't see their feet because they're really low to the ground. Oh, interesting. So they're like in the ground. Well, they're in the ground and it makes sense that this is not, he's not, he's not, he's seeing like sort of like a projection of the past because the Roman legionnaires are walking where the ground would have been. Would have been, yeah, because they built time. the city on top exactly. of the city when it burned down, yeah. Layers upon wow. layers on top of there. Joan Foreman in, in, talks about a Londoner named H.D. Alessio, and I really like this because I love any stories that talk about, like, the future or anything like that. Um, but this happens in 1975 where this uh, Londoner is basically walking down a tree-lined street near his home, and he enters this detached, dreamy state. Suddenly, a silence envelops the area, and uh, this guy named D'Alessio, he sees the road and the houses along the road made out of a shiny silver material that looks synthetic. Mm. He sees road vehicles floating past him as if they're riding on beams of energy. Oh, weird. He thought he was seeing the future. There are uh, vehicles that fly in this, like drone vehicles that fly in the sky. Like, the question mm -hmm. is constantly, like, what year do we have to get to where cars will finally freaking fly. Yeah, right? When? Yeah. We're going to bring it home with two, two last stories. Um, two cool. last stories and a, and a little musing on, on time storms themselves. But this is, this is my favorite story out of all of them. This happens in the UK, 1942. Bernard from north of England 
is a happily married man who's trained as a nurse. Apparently this dude, Bernard, is so good at being a nurse that he, he it says he rose to a prominent position. <laughs> okay. He was a famous nurse. He's, he's so famous, I guess, in England that he doesn't, um, he doesn't want any, he doesn't want the researcher to make note of his name because he doesn't want it to ruin his reputation. Um, oh, interesting. This guy has talked to psychologists about this. He's tried to figure out an explanation for this insane story in his life. A lot of normal people, quote unquote, normal people sometimes have these stories that they can't explain and that no one's going to explain it for them. And I think mm -hmm. people are searching for some boring scientific explanation so that they don't have to feel like they brushed up with some strange, strange core element of reality. But right. guess what? There's no, there's nobody but Jenny Randall's that you can call to kind of make sense of this stuff because she's who the who you one, gonna call? She's the one who, um, Clutchy Jenny. She's the one yeah. who who is taking this stuff seriously. Bernard has this. Bernard tells Jenny Randall's this story. It was during World War II. Bernard was a young boy, and he's he he had just made friends with a girl named Angela Shine. Shine. Shine was a little girl who was evacuated from Surrey during the war. Um, they're they're alone. It's the summer of 1942. They're walking up the hill east of Manchester as they often did together, and they're searching for bullet spent bullets. Little kids. Uh, that is love a, looking for shotgun shells. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a I thing. didn't know that was we a thing. We did that. We did that in Iowa. You did that? Okay, that's awesome that you said that because that's, I wish I had that kind of childhood, man. <laughs> so two weird things happen to these kids while they're on a walk. First, there's an overwhelming air of calmness hits them. It gets super quiet over the hills. What is it? It's the Oz factor that sets in. They get, they get this strange sensation of uh, being off and losing consciousness. Two youngsters, they sit down by a tree. They're kind of in this weird state. They're like, what's going on? We're too young to do drugs. What's happening to us? Oh my us? gosh. Uh, they're sitting there. I think they're they're having like a drink or whatever they're, they're uh, whatever they brought with them, that little little British beverage. In, the, in their thermos? Yeah, in their thermos. Um, by the way, if the Oz factor kicks in in England all the time, like, I don't think there's any point in doing hallucinogenics or anything. You just got to move to England. Just move to England, and take walks. exactly. So Bernard yeah. describes this reverie that comes over him, and out of out of the ether, out of the calmness, out of the Oz, him and and uh, his friend are sitting down, Angela, and they hear these voices. They hear two voices uh, in the in the air. They they both sit up. And they, they look over and they see these two men that are standing over them that are discussing the children as if the children aren't there. Okay. I see this as like a bizarre like Disney scene. Back when Disney was like super <laughs> weird. Like I can see this being like a little Disney cartoon where these two spacemen or whatever they are, are like standing over these kids in this dreamlike state. So they hear the guys talking. One of them says... Here they are. And the other one's holding some sort of a, 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 a device. And it has a string of numbers and some sort of a dial. And they can hear the man reading off strings of numbers. They're, they can hear the men having a conversation about stuff that at the time made no sense to Bernard. So Bernard's mm -hmm. telling us what he heard at that moment that at that time he had no interpretation for 
because he just he didn't understand what he was hearing. But he got the gist of what the guys were talking about. They were talking about time as if it were a landscape that could be navigated. Ooh, they were like interesting. They were like sort also, of. Also, he experienced time travelers. He didn't experience time travel. Well, what's happening? They're entering the Oz factor because there's the magic the of the or whatever it is is happening around them. The time storm, and then at and then at the same time, these travelers seem to be navigating time, and they're above them. Weird. Mm. Every once in a while, they hear these two guys pause and say, "They are beautiful children, aren't they?" The two men are human. They even look handsome, Bernard says. He says that they're wearing this weird synthetic suits that are um, really strange looking at a time of like World War II in England, right? Yeah. By the way, when do we develop that style? Well, when did synthetics even come around? Like the late 50s, 60s? Well, no, I want to know when we're going to get those synthetic suit styles like, I think we already have them. I mean, like the shiny jumpsuits that people wear and like the zip up. Uh, well, you got to tell you me know. where I can find that because, well, I, <laughs> honestly, Uniqlo is so bizarre these days that mm. they're on the verge of getting there. Yeah. Did you see like the color of the year is beige? I didn't like know there skin, wasn't like color nude of the colored. Year. Yeah, there's always a color of the year. Okay. But, like the Kardashians have been wearing beige. So the so. kids, they don't think that they're time travelers. They actually think they're like angels. They're not sure mm. what they're seeing. The last thing they're thinking about is time travel. Bernard's recalls the lengthy discussion the two men are having, and then eventually uh, the, the guys start talking to the children. They start, the, the, the two men start describing what's going to happen in Bernard and Angela's life. It's as if they're reading out everything that's going to happen to the kids to kind of like just give them clues. They're like, They tell them all this stuff that's going to happen in their lives. And then they're like, don't say anything. It's a secret. So they became aware that the kids were there after they were talking about them? Oh, the the two, the two, the children are aware of the men talking. The the men talking were aware of the children and they're talking about them. And then at some point in this Disney-like story, the men just starts talking to the children. Oh, see, I thought the men didn't know that the children were there. No, no, no. They know the children are there because earlier I said they commented, these are beautiful children, aren't they? Right. But I thought they were like talking about them like, oh, yes, our children are so beautiful. No, no, no. They're, they're talking about sleeping. Bernard and Angela. Mm, okay, okay. They're talking. They, the two, the two, I'm going to just call them spacemen. The spacemen are talking about Bernard and Angela as if Bernard and Angela are not there. So that as if right. they don't realize that the kids can hear them. So oh, maybe maybe uh, these are travelers that are, maybe we constantly have these time travelers around us, but normally there's no way to hear them or see them. Maybe these Yeah, or kids, they have like a curtain. Yeah, these kids just so happen to normally, these kids just so happen to walk into this area that was like a window area where they could hear them. So the kids, Bernard as a little kid asked the time travelers, where are you from? Who are you? Where are you from? And one of them smiles and looks into the sky and says, we're from a long way away. Ooh. Then the two men tell Mysterious. the children that they need to sleep. Bernard recalls a light glowing brightly above their heads. He says he's not sure what it was. And then a warm feeling comes over them and they lose their awareness. And then shortly afterwards, the kids kind of like wake up. They're like, oh shit, we got to get home. They run home for tea and, and biscuits or whatever. 
When they get to the foot of the hill, there's this farmer that stops them and says, who are you? And then they tell him who he is, and the farmer says, you better get home right away. When the kids get home, they thought they were gone for a couple of hours. They were gone for more than a day. Oh, shit. They had missing time. That's that thing that I was kind of talking about, the folklore stories. It, exactly. And Bernard and Angela, they don't speak about this experience. They don't want to tell strangers about it. But eventually, I think when they get older, at least Bernard wants to share it with therapists and stuff because it's something that affected him. And it's something he right. never quite had an explanation for. That would haunt me. So I think we're we're looking at a scenario where with a lot of these stories, and there was another story that I didn't include, but there's a story where this couple goes to the grocery store. They get wrung out. They have ice cream because they, uh, and they, they think to themselves, we got to get home before the ice cream melts. And yeah. they're bringing the ice cream home. Suddenly the couple loses like, loses hours of their life. Yeah. And the couple is really shocked. And they try to, they tell people, they trial therapists, they, they look at the receipts, they hire, they, they talk to the police. They're trying to figure out what happened and they can't figure out what happened. And Jenny Randall's makes a good point that would tie to this story too, that if you're looking at this through the UFO lens, you're going to interpret it as a, as a UFO. A UFO kidnapped them and they're experiencing right. missing time. Like the Betty and Barney Hill. Exactly. But if you're looking at this with a more open mind to basically be open to all the other weird shit that could happen, you're open to the fact that it could be a time storm. It's not that these aliens kidnap the kids. It's that the kids are experiencing a time slip of some kind. Maybe they're just seeing people who are coming from the future who have access to what's happening. And they're like tourists. And they're such irresponsible tourists, right? They're like, yeah. they're like looking at their weird iPad from the future. <laughs> they're telling the kids their future. They're like, don't tell anyone it's a secret. They're a bunch of amateurs. Maybe it was them. Wouldn't that be creepy? Oh, I think the kids would know. Don't you think the kids would know if it was them? I, I, if they were in suits and weird suits, maybe they had their faces covered or they couldn't see them clearly. Or I don't know. I don't think anybody knows what they're going to look like as adults or old people. Oh, dude, that reminds me of that really creepy movie that Ryan Johnson made. Looper? Paul Dano's in this movie. And Emily Blunt. Dude, that movie is crazy. But in that movie, they show you people when they're older and they it's weird. It really captures the weirdness of certain characters. Like, the, they look similar, but you, you couldn't necessarily guess it either. Yeah, I remember there's this one scene, though, in Looper where there's this guy is being chased by his past self because they have to kill their future selves, I think, at some point. Or, Ooh, or something like that's that. That's not good. And there's this one scene where the guy escapes and he's chasing him through the streets. And it's the most terrifying moment because the way the guy looks and the whole scene is incredible. Back before he got wow. a ton of hate for doing The Last Jedi. Right. So Jenny Randalls and Roy Sandback, another researcher, end up interviewing someone uh, named Nina Smith who lives in an isolated cottage in Yorkshire Calder Valley. So... Uh, Jenny and Roy uh, are interviewing Nina Smith, and Nina is complaining about all the electricity drains that are happening in her old building. She says the power company can't explain it either. Her house seems to suck a ton of energy out of the air. Her washing machine overloads and explodes. Light bulbs burst almost right away. 
She's in this building. She's in this area. She says there is some sort of an electricity drain in this area. Huh. It's good that she knows that it's electricity and not like a haunting. I would love to think that the beauty of our show will be allowing people to get more familiar with the differences of these events, even the similarities of the events, but the differences Mm -hmm. in the events so that they don't go thinking they have a poltergeist when they have a time storm scenario. That's huge. Yeah, that's I I could see how that could easily be misconstrued. Our idea of like monsters and and hauntings and bad things that we, we don't really attribute it to uh, anything otherworldly so we're always just like oh it had to have been a monster or something under my bed you know so or or you know mischaracterizing um miss did your birthmark itch yeah (laughs) mischaracterizing uh ufos like you know if if you're if you're calling everything a damn ufo then you're not going to get to the heart of what really is a ufo maybe there are other things that are responsible for losing time and just like you mentioned, just like there is a difference between these, these phenomenon, I know it's, it's a lot, but at the same time, there might be a very core connection between them too. That's true, yeah. Yep. Because to tie this all together, what do we bring to the table that, physical, that the physical universe needs? We bring the consciousness reality creator. We bring mm-hmm. the mechanism the the computer basically that's producing reality that's yeah. that's taking in the information that's creating the reality maybe by flattening the the curves and at the same time what do we have in certain areas and jenny jenny kind of uh points us in this direction a small glimmer of a clue with which which can explain maybe what's going on but when she ended up researching the whole area which is the the calder area valley underneath um, Nina's home, she ended up finding out that uh, there happened to be large quartz crystals in the stone underneath this whole area. Ooh, crystals. Quartz crystals. And and I think this is something Tesla uh, figured out too, but quartz crystals, when they're put under enough pressure, they can emit electrical sparks that can operate batteries or lighters. Cool, yeah. Research at the U.S. Bureau of Mines in Colorado and experiments by U.K. geologists have found that these these effects of quartz crystals generating electricity can be magnified by a lot if there is a great pressure put on the crystals. And what can create that great pressure? Two two things that can create that pressure. Um, A fault line can create the pressure or some sort of a reservoir or estuary can create that pressure. So a ton of water pressing down on crystals can create that energy as well. Well, there's a researcher named Michael uh, Persinger who specializes in the effects of electromagnetic radiation on the brain who can attest to the fact that basically electromagnetic radiation, when it comes in contact with the brain, can stimulate the neurons. So right, you have people it, with these little mini energy fields in their brains anyway, electrical energy fields. You have this insane amount of activity happening underneath. When these two things hit each other, when they reach each other, what can happen? Can you go through a time loop? Can you experience a time slip? Can your mind create 
if, if our minds are creating reality, can your minds literally like a projector end up creating these events that, that transpire, that interact with physical reality? Mm. Atmospheric yeah. energy mm. can be triggered by geological processes. Here's, the, I'm going to close with this last story. This actually happens in the same area that Nina Smith um, described, the Calder Valley. Here's, yeah. And here's one last time storm story. Are you ready? Ooh, ready. It's July 1995. Four people are having a barbecue in the garden when they, suddenly the atmosphere begins to feel strange. They describe this heaviness. They describe this electrical charge in the air that seems to be coming on with the onset of a storm. They're at this trippy barbecue and it becomes trippier because they start to notice distortions in the flow of time. So they start to feel these strange effects. They notice the distortion in time as if the events are being compressed in a weird way. In addition to this, this is what makes it an even trippier party. They start to see objects suddenly moving on their own, flying from one area to another. Whoa, they see a hello. glass moving from the table to the floor. It just moves down. There's also a strange state of consciousness that hits them. They all describe the Oz factor. They all describe this sense of isolation. And they all describe the disappearance of normal sounds. And it's at this point that their recollection of what happens totally breaks down. The witnesses have struggled to piece together what happened. They only remember little bits and pieces of what happened next. What they can agree on seeing is a dark gray mass that appears and that a mist and fog seem to envelop the entire garden. They recall a beam of light that comes down. And beyond that, they remember things becoming suddenly dark as if many hours had passed by. Indeed, they all kept checking every source they could find, every clock in the house, every watch, and they noticed when they come to finally, it's hours later. Four people, yeah. just, like we, just like we talked about in the Times of Story, two people having the same story, four people experiencing the same event, four people losing hours of their lives. Two women, <laughs> like they fall in a deep sleep on the floor, one man becomes violently ill, and, another, uh, and another's wife suddenly becomes super nauseous. And over the next wow. few days, they become extremely tired. They experience muscle pains and tingling sensations. They experience rashes. One witness- Strange birthmarks that look like scars. One witness says that the extraordinary effects on the flow of time was like a videotape cut up and stuck together out of order. Ooh, creepy. So it, yeah, that sounds like a bad trip. It does sound <laughs> like a bad trip. So you can't cover all of a Jenny Randall's book when you're doing a Jenny Randall's book. Quit while you're ahead and focus on something. <laughs> um, she honestly, she has so many great stories. If, if I, I suggest that if you guys can track down a version of this book that doesn't cost $1,000, um, I highly recommend getting it. It's, it's a relic itself. It's definitely a masterpiece in the realm of stuff that we're looking at. It includes Love so it. many great cases and, and, uh, and it just gives you a lot of great things to think about. So that concludes Time Storms for now until we revisit it one day. What, it, what do we have coming up next week, Sydney? Yeah. Well, next week, uh, we are going to be diving into Leslie Keen's UFOs. UFOs. Uh, we're, 
Yeah, we're going to split this book up, so it's probably also going to be in two parts. Right. I would assume. We are. Um, but yeah, this is, it's, it's another similar to Passport to Magonia, very just informational book. Uh, it's a collection of essays and reports that were written by very high up, uh, intelligent, retired, uh, men from the, the armed forces. Is that the military, I guess, armed forces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they both no, work. Yeah, it works. Yeah, but military men. The, uh, she covers the... I don't. I don't know if it's pronounced Comita or Comita report. I would say Comita because it's like a comet, Comita, Comita ah. uh, report. Yeah, there's a lot of great information and some and some good stories too. So we'll we'll hit that up next time. Uh, but but again, it's it's not quite so much at, like Time Storms where it's just really intricate information and very specific. Like like I loved when you read Jenny Randall's uh, definitions of what was the definition? Deja vu. Um, synchronicity. Synchronicity. Syn- yeah. uh, synchronicity was the first one, and I just remember being like, I I under I like heard all the words that you said, but th- it took me a minute to like really comprehend them, and it was like, wow, I can see how this could be really dense read you know to read but rewarding in the same sense so yeah this one this one has a little bit of of both books in the sense that it's it's more informational and kind of uh demystifying the idea of what people think ufos are you kind of brought that up for a a half second there And, and just just the fact that um it, that term has become so public that it's really tarnished the, the true meaning of the word, which is unidentified objects. Right. Um, so actually, the military has come up with a, with a new term for that. So we'll we'll hit that up next week too. And I think you know when you're talking about Jenny Randall's definitions, it's interesting because uh, who do we look to to define these things? We can't look to the dictionary. Where some mm-hmm. somebody with a job was like, oh, let me just come up with a definition. We can't look to scientists. We need to look to people who are researchers who can help us define this in an open-minded way. And um, yeah. and and the reason that I think you know, time storms is so crazy because it's like picking a book for for myself and for us collectively that has nothing to do with UFOs. Okay, UFOs are nice and all, but what about all this other stuff that happens? Right. And I think it's really great to have covered this early on because when we start covering UFOs, we'll have a way, we'll, we'll be able to ask ourselves, okay, is it possible that there's something else happening that's more of an earth related phenomenon? The, the crazy thing about Leslie Keene's book is that she's doing something that is, is almost taboo to me and it's it's almost it's it's like a taboo thing to um, to someone like John Keel, which is she's looking at the nuts and bolts aspect of the of the UFO phenomenon. So she's trying right. to find the evidence. She's trying to find the physical artifacts. You know, people who deny the UFO phenomenon will say, "Well, there's no physical evidence." You know, why right. do we never get photos? But the reality is, we do get photos. We do get physical evidence. Sometimes that physical evidence doesn't even make any sense because it's just like earth-bound materials or it's materials that we don't understand, that we can't mm-hmm. study. But the fact of the matter is when someone like Leslie Keene starts investigating something, she means business. She's going to tell us how it is. And we are going to touch upon, for two people like you and I who are not super schooled on, on, the, on the UFO 101, which is what we're doing this for, we're going to come in contact with a lot of the basics, like Project Blue Book, we're going to take a yep. look at, like, what is the paper trail that the government's not telling us about? What's the evidence for this? And um, what can we conclude from that? So I'm excited. Yeah, me too. <laughs> 
You, you said it so eloquently. Absolutely. Well, thank you, my dear. I'd like to thank your ears for listening. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to thank your scar. And <laughs> I'd like to thank everyone else's ears and scars. Thank you for dining with us. Hold those cosmic appetites for next time. Reach out to us on Twitter and follow us on Instagram at Cosmic Feast. Cosmic Feast.